Good morning, Four Corners. Praise God for another opportunity to worship Him together and to hear from His Word. And praise God that these children are leaving to go hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, what He came to do to take away our sin guilt before a holy God. That's what they're going back there to hear, and that's what we are hearing in here. So we praise God for another opportunity to hear these truths. And a warning, I think, should accompany that. And it is this, that the more we hear the word of truth, the more we hear the gospel and turn away from it, the harder, more callous our hearts become. So in a sense, uh, this is a wonderful privilege and opportunity to be gathered to hear God's word. It is also a dangerous thing to hear the word of God. And so let me just say to you, if you've been coming for some time sitting and you have not been responding to the Lord, let me just warn you today that another Time sitting under the preaching of the word, sitting under the reading of the word, and hardening your heart and and not responding and continuing down your road, that is a road that leads to death and hell. It's not a road that leads to joy and happiness and bliss in God's presence. So let's be warned this morning as we soberly and joyfully come to God's word. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 42. Genesis 42. We've been in Genesis for a while, and we're in the story of Joseph at the end of the book. And we are well into that story as we've seen it unfold since, really, chapter 37 is when it begins. So we are quite a ways in. And last week, we looked at Joseph exalted over Egypt. That was the incredible event where the Pharaoh exalts Joseph to be the next underneath him. He's the one who rides in the second chariot. He's the highest authority in the land aside from Pharaoh himself. Joseph had accurately interpreted Pharaoh's dream. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh had had these two dreams that were one and the same, and there would be seven years where there would be much produce in the land. And that would be followed by seven years of severe famine, famine that would basically eclipse the seven years of plenty. And Joseph had faithfully and accurately interpreted Pharaoh's dream. No one else could do it. All of the magicians in the land and the Egyptians were known for dream interpretation. Not a single one of them was able to tell Pharaoh what his dreams meant. And Pharaoh responded to Joseph's accurate interpretations by exalting him to the highest position in the land of Egypt. He would be the wise and discerning man, to gather grain during the seven years of plenty, to store that in cities in preparation for the seven years of famine, which would come on the land. And then once those seven years of famine came, Joseph would be responsible for distributing that grain to people in need. As I said last week, this famine was both severe and universal. This was not a famine just for a a little pocket of people or just for the land of Egypt. It was universal. There was famine for Egypt and there was famine for all the lands surrounding Egypt. And so we read last week at the end of chapter 41, we read in verse 56, the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And then in the very next verse, we read verse 57, the famine was severe all over the earth. This is universal. All people are coming to Joseph, the one man. And I pointed this out last week that I think this points us to Christ. We know that Christ is present all throughout the Old Testament. And he's present in a number of ways, but two of the ways that we see him most clearly are in prophecies 
And we know how much the New Testament authors make of prophecies and how uh, it was written that this would happen and that in the Christ event, in the coming of Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection, we see the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so that has to be part of what Jesus means once he is raised from the dead and he meets those disciples along the road and he begins to unlock for them the mysteries of the Old Testament. He begins to explain to them that all of those Hebrew scriptures were about him. The Psalms, the prophets, the law, everything pointing to him. So of course we know that prophecies were a part of that as well. But we also find in the New Testament this idea of typology. And that may be just a big word that goes over your head. But essentially it just means this. That there are little types, little pictures, little shadows in the Old Testament. And Christ is the fulfillment of those types. David, for example, is a type. He's a a little C Christ. He's a little K king. And Christ is the fulfillment of that type. He's the Davidic king. He is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And there are many, many others. And what I submitted to you last week was that Joseph himself serves as a type. We have the image of Joseph in Egypt. And here are all of these people flooding to him. People from Egypt are coming to him. People from all over the world, all around that area, coming to Joseph for salvation. Coming to Joseph for survival and provision. And this reminds us, as I said last week, that when we come to a narrative like this, our minds, our eyes are meant to go to Christ, to flee to Christ, to run to Christ, because in Christ we see the one man, the new man, the second Adam, the one to whom all the nations must run if they are to be saved. In the one man, We have redemption. And Joseph shows us that here in this story of the famine. And it is at this point, as the seven years of plenty have now turned into the seven years of famine, with this universal famine, it's at this point that our minds are naturally drawn back to who? Joseph's family. What is going on with these people that we haven't read about in a while? What is going on with Joseph's family back in Canaan? The last we heard wasn't very good. The sons of Jacob were selling their brother into slavery. And then lying to their father about it, covering up their sin. Leaving their father to believe that he had been devoured by a wild animal. Their father was in a state of perpetual mourning over the loss of his son. And not merely his son, but his favorite son, the son of his beloved Rachel. And one of the brothers, a representative really of the brothers, Judah, is intermarrying with Canaanites. Treating his daughter-in-law unjustly and sleeping with what he thinks is a cult prostitute. Well, that's the state of the family. That's the last we heard of this holy, chosen, elect family of God. The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Today, as we come to chapter 42, Joseph's family reappears on the scene. We haven't seen them in a while. Since chapter 38, and really the whole collective bunch of them in chapter 37. And now, here we are. In chapter 42, and they reappear on the scene. Over 20 years have passed since Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. It's been two decades. Just imagine yourself two decades ago. That's a long time. A lot happens in 20 years. And now, they too have been affected by this universal famine, they too must go to Egypt to buy grain. And so the title for the sermon this morning is Famine for the Family. And let me get you to go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Famine for the Family. 
And we'll be reading Genesis 42, verses 1 to 38. This is God's word. It is the means God uses for salvation to bring us to an understanding of his grace. And it builds us up in our faith so that we will be fully equipped for every good work. Let's listen carefully. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. That's ironic. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no. It is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. Let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest, men, Let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. 
Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. You can be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time in his holy word. Let's pray. Father, we gather this morning recognizing as we have in the order of our service that we are sinners. God, There's not a single person in this building right now with an entirely undivided mind, a pure heart of devotion to your glory, a heart that has no grasp on idols. God, we see our sin before your face and we run to Christ as all those people recognized they were starving and had no food and they ran to Joseph they went to Joseph so too God we run to Christ this morning and we see in him an undivided mind a pure spotless, blameless, devoted heart. A perfect righteousness with which he clothes his people. And so God, we come this morning in the name of Christ, knowing that to pray and to work and do in the name of Christ is not merely to attach in Jesus' name to the end of something, but it is to do all in recognition of this glorious gospel of grace through Christ. And so, Father, we come this morning. We ask for your provisions in our hearts, that our hearts would be held fast by your truth. We pray, God, that you would speak to us today, each of us a needy sinner, each of us in need of reassuring graces from you, of your great promises Through Christ, that in Him all is yes and amen. We pray that that would be the burden of our hearts today and the great joy that unleashes godliness in every facet of life, that in the joy of our redemption and future restoration, we would live unto you in great holiness of life, that you would forgive us for where we are not holy. And that you would set us on a flaming trajectory of God-glorifying conduct. Lord, we pray for your help. Be with us today in this time, this very special time of sitting under your word. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name, for his sake, for his glory. Amen. So, in commenting on chapter 42, John Calvin writes these words. In this chapter, Moses begins to explain how Jacob, with his whole family, was drawn to Egypt. And then he says this. There is hardly any more illustrious example 
of divine providence to be found anywhere than in this account. So, according to John Calvin, what we are reading in chapter 42 is the best, clearest, most glorious example of God's providential hand at work. So we take note this morning as we come that this God who is at work, who was at work, is at work today in our lives. He's at work in our homes. He's at work in our jobs. He's at work in our hearts. He's at work back there with our children. I've divided this illustrious example of divine providence into four parts that we're going to spend our time looking at today as we walk through this chapter. So four parts. First, the reunion. Second, the requirement. Third, the reflection. And then finally, the return. So let's look first at the reunion. Let's look at verses 1 to 11. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers. But they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now, we begin for the first time as the reader. Obviously, if you know this story, you already knew this. But if you are letting it unfold naturally for you as the reader of any story would, now we begin to understand why Joseph was sold into Egypt. Isn't this beautiful? This is what Calvin is referring to. Now we're understanding why everything that's happened has happened. Why he had to undergo such suffering. Why God has been with him to exalt him over all of Egypt. That wonderful act of God we read about last week. Why God has placed him as the governor of the land to distribute grain during a time of severe famine. Why, why, why? Unanswered. Until now. Now it becomes clear why all of these things have happened. It is so that his family would be saved. That is the primary reason why all of this is happening is so that Joseph's family, that ragtag bunch we just talked about earlier and all the things that we saw last time we looked at the family, that this family would be saved. We read this later in the narrative, chapter 45, verse 7. This is Joseph speaking. And God, listen to the language, and God sent me before you. God sent Joseph to Egypt. Hold on a second. I thought he was thrown into a pit by his brothers and his brothers raised him up out of the pit and they sold him to some slave traders and the slave traders brought him down to Egypt. That's not what he said. He says, God sent me before you to preserve for you God's gift to this family. To preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. That's why. And then we read this also in Psalm 105, verses 16 to 17. When he summoned a famine, the psalmist is talking about the famine. By the way, God brought the famine too. This is the sovereignty of God. He's in control of the whole thing, all of it. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them. 
Joseph is sent by God ahead of his brothers, ahead of the rest of his family, ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. The slavery, the imprisonment, the exaltation of Joseph, all means that God used to get to this point. Chapter 42. Here's what this means. This is remarkable. It means that God used the jealousy and hostility. Remember where all this began? Chapter 37. We read about it earlier. God used the jealousy and hostility of the brothers to bring about a series of events that would ultimately save the family. So there is a sense in which, hard for us to wrap our minds around, I talked about this previously, there is a sense in which God is behind the jealousy and the hatred in the hearts of these brothers. Hard for us to understand because we know God is not the author of sin. And they're responsible for their their sin. As we'll go on to see today, the guilt that they have before God is real. And yet, a sovereign God is working through that. It tells us something important for life. God can do incredible things with your past failures. Here's the thing. We all come here this morning with regrets. Maybe some of us more than others. You come here this morning and you feel the weight of your past failures. You know what you did back then. You know how you sinned against God. How you sinned against others. And as Christians, those bought by Christ's blood, those redeemed and filled with the Spirit, we can be assured, just as this covenant family, the family of Jacob, those who are in covenant with God through Christ, we can be assured that God can do absolutely amazing things even with our past failures. That is so encouraging. To the person here this morning, Who feels defeated by those past failures. You see the effects of them, right? You see the effects of them in your children. You see the effects of them in your marriage. You see the effects of them in your finances. You see the effects of them in your health. And yet God can do mighty things through them. We also realize that God can do incredible things through your past tragedies. So all that's gone before is from one perspective... Failure from the perspective of Joseph's brothers. They sinned. God can take their failures, their moral evil, their sin and turn it for good. But from the perspective of Jacob and Joseph, it's been tragedy. And so from either perspective, whether you are reflecting on your past failures or on your past tragedies, God can take that and do incredible things for your good. And so the response, really, to a story like this for us, one of them is to just commit those past things into God's hands. Let go of those past things. Trust God with those past things. When you put them in God's hands, they are safe and secure. They are in good hands. And he can do anything in his great power. This is the God of Joseph. It's the God of Lonnie. It's the God of each and every one of you. And he is the living God. Now. So now, in the midst of this divinely orchestrated salvation from famine, the brothers are sent to Egypt. Jacob hears that there is food in Egypt and he tells his sons to get up and get busy. These guys are just sitting around, not doing anything. And it's as though Jacob sort of comes up behind him and pops him on the back of the head, lightly, of course, and says, come on, get to work. You guys, you guys need to do something about this. Everybody's starving. What are you doing standing there looking at each other? Make yourself fruitful and productive. But not all of his sons, Benjamin, is not included in this. He must stay behind. The last son of his beloved wife, Rachel, Joseph's full Brother, he must stay. 
he cannot go because something could happen to him. And now the, the, the multicolored coat uh, has fallen, metaphorically, to Benjamin. I don't know, maybe his dad made him a coat too. But Benjamin is the favorite. Benjamin is the favorite of his father. And he's the replacement, really, for Joseph in his heart. Although Joseph cannot be replaced for Jacob. But, but Benjamin is the object, the new object of his premier affection. He can't go. And this need for food sets the stage for a reunion for the first time in 20 years. This is dramatic stuff. This is a really great story. I mean, just on that level. It's incredibly dramatic. For the first time in 20 years, Joseph and his brothers are reunited. But it is only Joseph who recognizes his brothers. The brothers could not have dreamed. I mean, even if Joseph would have been standing right in front of them, they could never have dreamed that this could be Joseph, that their 17-year-old brother, whom they had sold into slavery over 20 years before, was now standing in front of them, clothed in all the regalia of Egyptian royalty as the Lord of the land. Inconceivable. A DNA test probably would not even be convincing. Inconceivable. And in fact, when he tells them later that he's Joseph, they just look at him, bewildered. And he eventually says, you see my mouth. Speaking to you, it's my mouth. I know what his mouth looks like because his head's been shaved. He doesn't have a beard anymore. But they know his mouth. And they recognize him. And what happens at this reunion brings us back to the very beginning of the story. Verse 6, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Do you hear that? What did we read earlier, chapter 37? That Joseph had these dreams. And these dreams were that his, his family, they were going to come and they were going to bow down to him before him. And everybody just was like, what, what are you talking about, Joseph? This is silly. We are going to bow down before you. Of course, his brothers just hate him for it. And his father scolds him, but he keeps it in mind. Like, what in the world's going on? He had had his own dream, but still rebukes his son. What are you talking about? We're going to bow down before you. Now we see the beginnings of Joseph's dream being fulfilled. Now, not entirely because Benjamin's not with them yet and their father's not with them yet. But we see the beginning, sort of part one of the fulfillment of those dreams. As these brothers come and they bow their faces to the ground before Joseph, their younger brother. Joseph reflects on this. Verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. I think this reminds us of something important. And that is that God's revelation always happens. When God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Christ is coming back in glory. He's going to come back and he's going to raise his people from the dead just as sure as this right here is in front of my eyes. Christ will be in front of the eyes of those who are on the earth one day in the clouds. And those who have died unrepentant, not in Christ, will be raised and they will stand before God as judge and be cast into hell. Christ will come and exercise vengeance on the earth in righteous judgment so that the blood on the earth will rise up to the mouth of a horse. It will happen. The most violent day in human history and Christ will do it. That's the seriousness of sin. Your sin and my sin. And yet on that day, Christ will, rise, will raise up all those who have died in hope. And he will bring us to be with him forever. Every other promise of the scriptures has come true. The revelation that God gave then in these dreams came true. And so if you're thinking it's not going to happen, you're losing heart as a Christian. Take heart, Christian. God's word will come to pass. And if you're here this morning, you think, oh, no, it will all work out in the end. I assure you, it will most certainly not work out in the end unless you are in Christ. 
God's revelation always comes to fruition perfectly. But the reception that these brothers receive is not a friendly one. And that brings us to our second movement of the story this morning, the requirement. Look at verses 12 to 20. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. One is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. There's a little bit of a switch here, though, it seems. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we'll come to verse 21 in a moment. I want to stop there, verse 20, here for the requirement. What is Joseph doing? That's probably one of the most obvious questions that you ask when you read this narrative. What in the world is Joseph up to? I mean, in some ways, maybe you're even tempted, after, even after everything Joseph has experienced, to say, this is mean. This is just mean. What is he doing with their minds? I mean, he is, what is he doing to his father later on? What is going on? He recognizes them, but he doesn't make himself known. Nor does he simply sell them grain and send them on their way. Remember, he had prayed with his first son. God has made me forget my father's house. So here they are. I've done forgotten about those guys. Here's some grain. Whatever. Go on your way. He does neither of those things. Instead, he accuses them of being spies. Of course, he knows they're not spies. He accuses them of being spies, refuses to listen to their defense, and puts them in jail for three days. Since they told him that they are the sons of one man and they still have one living younger brother, Joseph says they must bring this younger brother to Egypt to verify their story. This is Joseph's requirement. He says to them, one thing you must do, bring your younger brother here. And he says to them that this is a test to verify the fact that they're not just telling a lie. That they're not spies, but they have a younger brother. And if they can go and get him and bring him back, so they think this is what he's saying. That, that then their story will be verified and they can have what they want and go on their way. At first, Joseph says that one will return to Canaan to get their younger brother while the others remain confined in jail. But then after they spend three days in jail, Joseph seems to change his mind or else he just changes his tone. He does say that now all of them will get to go back and bring grain to the family while one stays confined in jail. So what is Joseph doing? Well, this is not revenge, but it is a test. I want to read a quote from Kent Hughes on this point. I think he captures it very well as he summarizes. This is what he says. Joseph needed to know what, his, what was in his brother's hearts. It's a test. Were they the same callous, murderous lot? Were they as heartless as they had been 13 years earlier? Did they still hate him? Would they resort to similar expedients among themselves when pressured? Would they sacrifice another to save their skins? Joseph needed to know the truth. And he knew that he might never know if he revealed who he was. 
So Joseph is testing his brothers to see over these last, and it's been 20 years, because remember it's 13 years when Joseph is brought to the, the, that position, and then there's the years of plenty that have to pass, or seven years, and then now we're into the years of famine. We're, we're two years into the years of famine. So it's been 20, 22 years, and we see here that Joseph wants to know what is in their heart. And it reminds us that God does test his people. And sometimes God uses other people to test his people. That sometimes there will be someone in your life that might annoy you or that you just may not like or, or that stresses you out or whatever. Fill in the blank. And, and we need to understand that sometimes God uses people, other people, our neighbor, maybe those very close to us uses them to test us, to draw out. Testing draws out the heart. It reveals what's really on the inside. Sometimes, the, that's why Peter talks about the genuine testedness of our faith, the tested genuineness, sorry, <laughs> testedness, that's not a word. The tested genuineness of our faith, that that is drawn out and it's tested, it's hammered out through the trials that we face. The tests of life. God will do this to every single Christian. So Joseph wants to see what their attitude is towards him, towards their father, and towards each other. In addition to wanting to test his brothers, Joseph also wants his younger brother, his full brother, Benjamin, to come to Egypt with him. And so Joseph has that objective as well. He wants to draw out what's in his brother's hearts and see how they respond to Simeon there left in prison. Are they going to just go back to Jacob and say, oh, Simeon was killed. Take all the money and just the food and just go back. What are they going to do with regard to Benjamin? How are they going to relate to the other son of Rachel? But Joseph wants Benjamin with him. His full younger brother. His baby brother. And that's part of what's going on as well. And we need to notice that Joseph sends them away with three things. And, and by the way, these three things are like clues that tell us that this is not revenge. So you might be tempted to think, man, Joseph is getting some revenge on them. But no, these three clues, I think, give us a hint. They give us insight into what is going on in Joseph's heart. So the first is we see a concern for their survival. Verse 18, do this and you will live. And then verse 20. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. So in the words of Joseph to his brothers, we see a concern that they not perish. Second, we see provisions for their family. Verse 19, let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. So Joseph switches. It's not going to be nine who stay and one who goes. Now it's going to be one who stays and nine who go. And they will go with provisions. One can't carry very much. But nine can. And thirdly, and probably most significantly, we have a reminder of their God. Verse 18, look at that. I fear God. So Joseph sends them away with a concern for their livelihood, their survival, provisions for their family, and here a reminder of their God. I fear God. He's reminding them. He's, he's sparking in their minds, remember who you are. Because at the core, you fear God too, or you should. I think this reminds us a little bit about revenge. Even after all that Joseph has faced, he does not have revenge in his heart. And I, I, once again, it reminds us of Christ. Who as he's dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. He does not lash out. He prays for them. And as he calls us to do, to pray for our enemies. And so every time we are tempted, this is part of the function of the sacred scriptures, is every time we are tempted from this day forward to revenge, we should consider Joseph. We should consider, have you suffered as Joseph suffered? Have you been thrown into a pit by the people you are tempted to take revenge upon? Probably not. Here we see, by God's grace, the work of the Spirit, 
whom we've already seen active, that Joseph is not a man seeking revenge on his brothers. Even after everything he has faced, all the affliction and the sorrow and the grief and the loneliness and the sadness, wondering what his father's thinking, no revenge in this heart. Thirdly, we come to the reflection. We look at verses 21 to 28. Listen to the reflection of the brothers. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? These verses are a window into the hearts of Joseph's brothers. Undoubtedly, Joseph's statement, I fear God, would have reminded them of all the ways that they did not fear God in their behavior, in the things they had done, in their heart prior to this. Reminded them of their their guilt before an awesome God. And now, through this test that Joseph subjects them to, Their hearts, their consciences are pierced with their previous sins. And I think that Joseph's words, I fear God, would have been a bit of a catalyst for that work in their hearts. That as they hear that language, they are reminded of the guilt of their own lives. They begin to reflect on their past sins, their present circumstances, and how these two things are wedded together now in their experiences. What they have done in the past, what they did in the past, now coming to bear on the present. Verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Listen to what he says. They say, that is why this distress has come upon us. And then verse 22, Reuben reiterates it. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. It reminds us of Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now we have a reckoning for the boy. Reuben says... And then at the end of the account, when one of them discovers that money had been put back in his sack, verse 28, as at this their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Do you see the intensity of the reflection of these men in these verses? That they are now forced to deal with their sin after the dialogue between Reuben and his brothers? Joseph has to leave their presence to weep. He hears and understands everything that they are saying. And through their words, he sees down deep into their hearts. And what does he find in their hearts? What does Joseph hear in their words? Contrition. Weak often, but contrition. Nonetheless, they are sorry for what they did. They recognize that they did an evil thing towards their brother, Joseph. That they ignored his cries for help. Can you imagine him down in that pit while they're munching on their food? And he's crying out, weeping to them. Don't do this to me. And they ignored him. They did not listen to his cries of distress. They ignored him and they sinned against their 
God. God is using now their present circumstances to bring about a godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, Paul talks about godly sorrow. And he says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. He's speaking to the Corinthians who have entertained sin in their midst and who have not uh, properly in a, in, a, in a disciplinary way dealt with sin in their midst. And he's saying to them that because of his letter, because of his preaching to them, because of what he said to them, that godly grief, godly grief has been produced in their hearts and that it has produced repentance that leads to salvation. So I think a text like this screams out to us, or the Spirit, rather, screams out to us through a text like this, saying, let your guilt serve this purpose in your life. There is a a kind of ungodly way to be guilty, where you just sort of weigh down self-pity, self-loathing. Well, that leads to death, both physically and spiritually. It drains you of everything. Instead of that, what we see here is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Maybe you are sorrow grief averse. Maybe you think, no, 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 I gotta just push that out. Those guilty feelings, those thoughts, just push those out, not deal with those. Jesus wants you to deal with those. Jesus is not interested in you just pushing those things out and hiding them and covering over them. And just saying, I'm a Christian now. I don't have to worry about that. You don't have to think about that. Jesus wants you to deal with that in a godly, sorrowful way that leads to repentance. If that's an ongoing thing. If it's something in your life that's bearing on your life. Godly sorrow is a beautiful thing. It's a grace. And God wants us to undergo that towards repentance. The guilt of the brothers shows us two things. Before we move on to our last point, shows us God's grace. Isn't it amazing? God has not thrown these brothers out. Now that's incredible. When you consider what Reuben did, what Simeon and Levi did, what Judah's done, and what the whole lot did to Joseph. And God is still working in them? Really? God is still doing things in their hearts? God still cares about their souls, their salvation. This is a God of abundant grace. The God whom we worship is a God who forgives trillions of sins upon trillions. Infinite. His grace is, it knows no bounds. He is a forgiving, loving God. And we are seeing in this godly sorrow something that we won't see later in Pharaoh with Moses. Hard, 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 no, no, no to God. Here we are seeing a malleable heart, one that is massaged like Play-Doh and one that can be ripped apart and moved and and replaced and, and, and molded and shaped for God's glory. That's what these men still have by God's grace. It also points us to the cross and tells us this. There's only one place to deal with guilt. And that's at the cross. Whatever guilt before God we have, which is immense. Whatever guilty, subjective feelings that we have. There's only one place to deal with guilt. And that is at the cross where Jesus paid for all the guilt and shame that we see even in the garden. And that we've seen ever since. That we see right now, even in our own hearts. As we look in this text as though we're looking in a mirror We run to the cross. And finally, this morning we have the return. Look at verses 29 to 38 as we close. When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. 
Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and when they, when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are, that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This return to Jacob essentially involves, involves two things. The brothers report and the father's refusal. The brothers report back to Joseph what had happened in Egypt. And of course, they have one objective when they report this to their father. They need to bring Joseph, Benjamin back with them to Egypt. This is the only way. This is the only way. This is the one requirement of the man. And he said, as Pharaoh lives... It's not going to be reversed. They must bring Benjamin back. This is the only way they will get more food. This is the only way they will get their brother, Simeon, back. And in the midst of this report, they discover that all of their money was put back in their sacks. This fearful set of circumstances then leads to Jacob's refusal. Jacob sorrowfully says in verse 36, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. What is Jacob saying when he says, You have bereaved me of my children? Well, some suggest that, that this means that these are the ones who, they are the ones who are reporting these things to Jacob. So they had reported initially that Joseph had been eaten by a wild animal. Now they're reporting that Simeon is in jail and Benjamin's got to go. So their reports keep pulling Jacob's kids away from him, his children, perhaps. Or maybe Jacob suspects what really happened. It's unclear. What does Jacob think happened to Joseph? Especially by the end of the story. We're never told. It's kind of a mystery. But this suggests that maybe Jacob suspects that his brothers killed Joseph. That his sons killed their other, his other son, Joseph. Reuben's response to Jacob's sorrow is that he will take full responsibility for Benjamin. Put him under my care, dad. And I offer my own sons up if I fail to keep him safe. You could kill your grandkids. As though that's supposed to be persuasive. But... He's trying to help Jacob feel the force of his responsibility. I will ensure his safety. But Jacob is unpersuaded. He refuses to let Benjamin go. And so the last verse of this chapter, verse 38 says, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow. To shale. No way, says Jacob. In this final scene, we also gain a view into Jacob's heart. Remember that we really are still part of the Jacob narrative. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we've been lost in the story of Joseph. And Joseph, is, he, he's the central character in all of these chapters. But we're still kind of under the banner of the Jacob story. And so now it's, it's intriguing that we come back and we get to see again. After all these chapters, we get to peer again into the heart of Jacob. His heart is broken. His mindset is cynical. His suspicions are raging. His favoritism Continues. This is a broken man. This is sad. Truly sad. We can read this and we can empathize with poor Jacob. He has no idea 
This is the glory of it all. He has no idea that his God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, his God is saving him and his family. He has no idea in all of his sorrow, all of this has come against me. My life is terrible. It's just ruined. He has no idea that God is orchestrating a great salvation, that his God is bringing about his own redemption from hunger and from sin. All that God is doing is veiled from him. He can't see it. And I want to submit to you this morning before we close, such is the life of faith. The life of faith is trusting the power of God behind the veil. We can't see all that God is doing. Jacob could not see all that God was doing. But readers of this story are able to piece it all together. And you just want to come and you want to grab Jacob. And you want to say, God is working. He can't see it. And here's the thing, Christian. He's doing the same thing for you. And oftentimes, we can't see it. Sometimes we can't see any of it. None of it. Jacob could see None of it. It was all bad. God did not even give him a morsel of good. And Jacob was to trust God. This is the life of faith. And it is impossible. Nominal Christian. It is impossible without the spirit of God. You cannot live unto God. And trust God. Without the spirit who gives faith. So know this morning. If you're trying to be a Christian. Stop. It will never work out for you. You need the spirit of God. Cry out for mercy and ask that God would regenerate your heart by the Holy Spirit. And know this, that even that prayer you pray is a gift from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for Genesis chapter 42. We thank you for your sovereignty and goodness to Joseph and his brothers. Your grace, God. We thank you that you are the same God today as you were then. And we can call out to you right now in this period of the service of response to your word. We can call out to you and you hear, you listen, you respond. Would we trust that you are this God? Whatever we think about you, whatever preconceived ideas we came in today with, Lord, that this, your word, your revelation of who you are would, would inform and would form how we approach you. You are this God. And you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.